2 Samuel, we'll be in 2 Samuel 22 this morning, 2 Samuel 22. Please do be in prayer for Jennifer and Stephen Geyer. Um, we are concerned for them and with them and we want them to be supported uh, with our intercession. These are some of the final words that we have from King David. And as final words, they are significant, they are weighty. There's something that we are to measure and think carefully through. So consider at your own funeral, what will your family and friends remember about you? About your life? If you could write your own final words, similar to what David is doing here. If you are looking back over your life and recording what it was like, how would you want to be remembered? What would you credit for the successes in your life? Your own ingenuity, your own gifting, your own efforts? How would you portray your faults and failures? Our text this morning again continues that epilogue to the stories of Saul and David that we've been seeing through 1st and 2nd Samuel. 2nd Samuel 22 is a praise song. It's a psalm of David in which he describes the secret to his success. Here's one of the greatest leaders to have ever lived. And he's offering you this morning the key to his greatness. A key that is available to you. We won't be surprised by what the psalmist says. The message is actually pretty familiar. But what is striking about this, this 51 verses of praise, is its intensity. The passion with which David speaks. This inspired poem provides for us a faithful model of how to set the compass of our lives. But will we? Will we realign our compass to what we see God saying through the voice of his prophet David? Why does it seem like some believers can never get enough of God and others seem content to merely refer to him, merely interact with him once in a while? I read this week of a believer who even after spending many, many years, decades studying the Bible and teaching it to others, when he goes to bed, before he does, he reads five or six pages of theology specifically on the character and attributes of God. He's intentionally choosing to set his mind on the nature of his God before he goes to sleep. The great reformer Martin Luther is recorded to have read through the Bible at least twice every year. That's about eight chapters a day. In addition to his studying to preach as a pastor and teach as a theologian daily in the seminary. It was said that he preached five to six times a week. And yet this was still his practice. When we read of men and women so devoted to the pursuit of God. So devoted to learning more of God through his word. We are not surprised to hear how God used them in uncommon ways. These believers aren't committed to this degree because they want to put God in their debt. Because they're trying to get something from God. They are pursuing him. They found something out about him. And they can't get enough. They want more of him. 
One author aptly states, people who know the goodness and the greatness of the true and living God have something worth having. He continues, now that's an understatement. Such people spend their whole lives learning more and more the immense value of knowing God. There are times when we forget, neglect, or otherwise overlook the treasure of knowing God, of what we've been given. That, he says, is always foolish. I think the author here has touched on the very point we need to understand this morning. Really, what is motivating David to write a psalm like this? He used the words worth, value, and treasure. The question is, do we value a relationship with God like we should, like David does? James 4.8 commands us to draw near to God and he will draw near to us. He's always available when we come to him. Hebrews 11.6 tells us he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Does that genuinely describe you and me? David spent his life pursuing God. In Psalm 63, he tells us that he has found God to be better than life itself. When we read a statement like that and evaluate it, it draws me up short. Can I say, I feel, I sense, I believe, I value God to be better than life itself? He knew God to be better than the greatest rewards that a king could experience. And my prayer as we work through this magnificent psalm of praise is that we'll be persuaded to take what the Spirit of God is offering to us The pursuit of a deeper, a more satisfying, a more stabilizing walk with God. Our value of who he is is to be raised. Our estimation of him is to be changed again. So let's consider this text. Let's begin reading in verse 1. We'll read through verse 20. This is the word of our God to us his people. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised And I am saved from my enemies. For the waves of death encompassed me and the torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I called. From his temple he heard my voice and my cry came to his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him his canopy. Thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven and the Most High uttered his voice. 
And he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning, and he routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He sent from on high, he took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me. For they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity. But the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Let's ask for his help as we consider his word together this morning. Father, we come before you expressing our need. We come before you expressing our dependence on your own spirit to open our eyes, to see these truths, to recognize who you are. Lord, help us to love you and worship you and serve you as we ought. In Jesus' name, amen. Our text will teach us this morning that our God delivers all those who take refuge in him. It asks us this morning to consider whether or not he is the one that we will continue to look to. We'll examine our text this morning considering five points. First, the God who deserves our praise. Verse 1 is an introductory summary statement. It gives us some idea of the circumstances in which David wrote this psalm. It's a psalm of praise. It's almost identical to Psalm 18. And though we have some idea when this happened, we don't know exactly. Because it says, when God had defeated all his enemies. And then when he had defeated Saul. The divinely inspired editor, though, includes it here at the end of 2 Samuel as a summary of David's dependence on God. This is David's testimony, his experience of his walk with God. Again, it's what he's saying is the key to his success. One writer states, David's history could have been narrated as that of a great and powerful king. This chapter, however, is concerned that it should be understood as the action of a great and powerful God. Now in verses 2 and 3, David sets forth the tone for the entire song. He explodes in praise. Notice, it's like it's just tumbling out of his mouth. He said, the Lord is my rock. And my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, and my refuge, my Savior. Now we should take note especially of three descriptions rock, shield, and refuge. Scan down through this poem, and you'll see these repeated in two more places. The second half of verse 31 says, He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? This rock is my strong refuge. We see it then repeated at the end of the psalm of the song. In verse 47, the Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. The psalm is telling you that God provides stability when all the circumstances of life would overwhelm you. God is where you're to find stability, no matter how bad it gets, no matter what seems like's happening in your life. This is 
David's testimony. He's telling us this has been the experience through some of the greatest hardships, persecution, and suffering that a person could face. Remember his life. Remember what he faced. How does someone come to this level of confidence in God? Where does this kind of peace and stability come from? How can we have this? David's a man who abundantly is abundantly evident that he spent a great time, a great deal of his time meditating on his God, on his character, on his faithfulness. This doesn't happen. This kind of confidence, this kind of knowledge of God, this kind of experience and walk with God doesn't come from just occasionally dipping your toe into thinking about who he is. David knows God's character. That's what's exploding from his lips. God, you are stability, peace, strength, my hope. David has turned to him in both times of plenty and of need. Now, look back at verses 2 and 3 and notice how many personal pronouns David stacks one right on top of the other. There's 10 here. That tells us that David sees his God, not as this God far off, but his God. Again, this is his testimony of walking with God. I think this is the most convicting aspect of the psalm to me. Do I know God personally to this degree? Is this what comes out of my heart when I'm put under pressure? Is he my rock, my refuge, my shield? Do I just talk a good game? Or am I running to him over and over again through the week? Through each day? Am I looking at life circumstances the way that David does? Am I convinced of what he's convinced of? Jenny and I were talking about this point recently. We were talking through some challenges in life, and I try very hard, I find, to run away from moments of hardship or insult, pain or suffering. That's natural to us, isn't it? Sometimes when it comes, those moments of hardship, I can tend to get angry and say, this isn't fair and focus all my attention there. Just how unjust the circumstances are that I'm facing. I feel like this is undeserved and I get upset. That's how we all respond, isn't it? And don't you think David has good reason to be angry at times in his life? To have chosen bitterness instead of praise? To be resentful even toward God? Why did he have to suffer so much for so long? Even after God had promised him, you will be king. But notice, that's not what David's focused on. He's focused on the stability that God provided to him time and time again through the suffering. He understands that those hardships are even the things that God used to bring him closer to himself. To show him aspects of his character that he might not have known otherwise. In the end, the hardships are used by an all-wise, all-loving God to bring him closer to himself. And notice how David, though, looks to God for justice. It's not okay 
that he was unfairly pursued and persecuted. He doesn't minimize or dismiss the violence and harm done to him. He demonstrates, though, the right response to it in verse 4. He says, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. Call upon the Lord. Call again and again and again. This should be our natural habit as believers who find him trustworthy, who find him to be our rock, our stability. Look at how David focuses on the nature and character of God. This is how he counsels himself. It's not let's fix these circumstances or address the problem this way. He says he is worthy to be praised. No matter how hard the hardship is, he remains worthy of my praise. And David tells us why. Because he hears my call. Because he will save in his time and in his way for his glory. Can you say he's worthy to be praised in the midst of the circumstances you're facing that are not pleasant, that are painful? Is he still worthy of your praise? Do you think David wants you to be convinced that he is? Do you think God's spirit wants you to be convinced of this truth that God is your stability? Now, how would that change your view of your circumstances if you are committed to seeing and praying, God, you're still worthy to be praised in the midst of circumstances like this? Your God will deliver you when you seek refuge in him. You could pray in your circumstances, Lord, I don't know why this is happening. I don't know why you've allowed this hardship or, pray or pain, but you are worthy to be praised You're paying attention to my needs. You will act in your time and in your way. You have promised never to leave me nor forsake me. I know this is true because of what you have provided to me in Jesus for all eternity. So help me trust and praise right now. Now notice why David believes God is worthy of his praise. We see secondly the God who delivers his king. In verses 5 through 7, David describes just how deep, how overwhelmed he was at many points in his life. The poetry here is so helpful in capturing David's feelings in these moments. He says, the waves of death surrounded me. It's like the waves of the ocean in the midst of a hurricane that are washing over him. He's about to drown. He says to Jonathan in 1 Samuel at one point that he often seemed but a step from death as he runs from the most powerful man in the land. A king who has all kinds of military power at his disposal. I'm just a moment from death. Now in verses 8 through 6, David describes how God responded to his cries of distress. And if you look carefully through these verses, 8 through 16, you'll notice now that David does not refer to himself again through any of those personal pronouns that he was using. He's filled with God's character and attributes as he acts on his behalf. And notice, we don't know any time in David's life specifically where God does this marvelous interaction through creation to come down and strike David's enemies. 
But David is looking with spiritual eyes and saying, God, you delivered me in miraculous ways. They're all descriptions of God's overwhelming display of love and protection. This is a father's fierce defense of his child. Listen to what he says. The earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked. What David's doing here is he's picking up language used by Moses to describe how God delivered Israel out of Egypt and through the Red Sea. Consider again verse 16. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He drew me out of many waters. He's saying God's rescue of me in the midst of my trials was as dramatic and miraculous as his deliverance of his chosen people. He's picking Israel's greatest moment of deliverance and saying, God, that's what you did for me as well. And why does God do this? Look at verse 20 again. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. God delights in his people. He delights in you if you're his. He's committed to your deliverance, to your growth, to your health. Do you remember what Jesus says to Saul on the road to Damascus? When the bright light strikes him, he falls off his horse onto the ground. Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Do you know what this tells us? Saul's been persecuting believers all around the region of Jerusalem and Christ took it personally. He didn't say, Saul, why are you persecuting them? He said, why are you persecuting me? God delights in his children. Zephaniah 3.17 affirms this again. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. Psalm 147.11, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. So because God delights in us, we then are to delight in him. Your God will deliver you when you take refuge in him. We now come to the most challenging section of this song. The challenge comes because David now will surprise us with how he portrays his relationship with God. Look down at verse 21. We'll read now through verse 31. David writes again, The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. With the merciful you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. You save a humble people. But your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord. And my God lightens my darkness. For for by you I can run against a troop. And by my God I can leap over a wall. 
This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. So thirdly, we see the God who provides righteousness. How are we to understand these challenging words from David? They raise a lot of questions for us. I'm not sure I'm satisfied with the complete answer that I have. But I think it at least explains it to a degree. Why does he proclaim his own righteousness in such absolute terms? What does he mean? What could he mean? We don't have trouble here understanding what he's saying, but how he could possibly mean these words. They seem preposterous to us from someone who's committed both adultery and murder. So what do we do with this? Well, first, we can dismiss the idea that David is proclaiming a works righteousness. He doesn't believe in works righteousness. That certainly doesn't fit the context of the rest of this chapter, nor the context of any other of David's statements in the books of First and Second Samuel. The challenging nature of these statements, though, then encourage us, they challenge us to think more deeply, more carefully. What is David saying? I believe the best way this challenging section uh, is to be understood is to recognize that David is not speaking in absolute terms. He's not talking the way Paul does in the New Testament. He's not saying he's justified by his works. This instead is wisdom literature and that functions a little bit differently. In the wisdom literature of scripture, a contrast is continually or regularly drawn between the righteous person and the wicked one, the one who rejects God. The righteous person is the one who pursues God. It's about his direction in life. It's never a statement about a person's absolute personal righteousness. Again, it's a contrast between wisdom and foolishness. Think again how last week we described this epilogue as an overwhelming contrast between David and Saul, a king who is righteous and a king who is wicked. Why did God reject Saul and virtually wipe out all of his descendants? But he forgave David of seemingly worse sin and even promised him an eternal dynasty. Surely David was the king God had chosen for his people. God pursued and chose David instead of all of his brothers. This wasn't the one that Samuel was thinking would be king. And David responded to God's grace and his word. And even when confronted with his sin, he repented. Remember, that is one of the major differences between David and Saul. David says in verses 22 and then in verse 28, For I have kept the ways of the Lord, look down at verse 22 again, and have not wickedly departed from my God. He didn't walk away. And in 28, you save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. Later, this seems to be affirmed by statement, uh, statements about David's life that generalize how he lived. 1 Kings 15.5 tells us that David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded all the days of his life except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. We have trouble with that discontinuity, don't we? But David understands God's word to him through Nathan the prophet. When God says, the Lord has put away your sin. 
the Lord provided him with a righteousness outside of himself. And David believed God's word. When he prayed in Psalm 51, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow, create in me a clean heart. God answered that prayer. Therefore, David embraces God's view of himself as righteous based on what God said. Will you set your course in life after the pattern of David or Saul? Will you pursue him wholeheartedly or try to bring him into the conversation only when it suits you? Will you use God as some magic genie in a lamp or as some cosmic vending machine? Or will you give your life to him because he's your king and you treasure him? How will you respond when the Holy Spirit confronts you with your own sin, your rebellion and disobedience? Will you turn quickly? The contrast being made between David and Saul urges us to choose humility and wisdom. And like David, we are made righteous by the declaration of God. We are to live then a life of obedience because of what God says about us. Romans 8.1 guarantees us there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That doesn't mean go then live however you want. Instead, it binds us to our God. We're accepted by God through faith in Jesus. Therefore, we obey out of humble gratitude. Our God delivers from sin. He delivers all those who place their faith in him. As we continue reading now, notice how David will emphasize this point again, that God is the one who's made him blameless. We'll see it in verse 33. Look down again at verse 32. We'll continue our reading through the end of the chapter. Verse 32, For who is God but the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them and did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them. I thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, those who hated me, and I destroyed them. They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them as uh, fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with my people. You kept me as the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. The God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed. 
to David and his offspring forever. Fourthly, we see the God who strengthens his king. In this section of the psalm, David is focused on the victories that God provided to him now as king. The first deliverance was deliverance from David, running from Saul. Now this is deliverance in David's position as the ruler of Israel. God is the source of all his victories, of all his successes. David takes credit for none of them. Notice in this section all the actions, the verbs that David's attributing to God. You equipped me with strength. You made my enemies turn their backs. You delivered me from strife with my people. You kept me as head of the nations. God is the source of all blessings in David's life. Now, though David is giving God all the credit for these successes, we're to recognize that he's also faithfully doing what God had called him to do. Just because God is at work in our lives doesn't mean we can sit back and take no action, that we can be passive. No, he sought to lead God's people well. He fought the battles in front of him. We're called to serve to the best of our ability in every avenue of our lives. The question we're to be asking ourselves is, am I being faithful? Am I faithful at home? Am I faithful leading my family? Am I faithful leading my children? Faithful in this body to serve others as I'm able? As God has said, faithful in my witness, faithful in my work. That's the measure. Then we trust God with the results afterward and give him all the credit, all the praise for what he accomplishes through us, whatever that might be. He delivers those who find refuge in him. Lastly, in verses 47 through 51, we see again the God who deserves our praise. This last section of the poem returns to that same theme we saw at the beginning. Therefore, this point is repeated. Look again at David's conclusion in verse 50. For this, your deliverance, I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. This is to spread out and sing praises to your name. Can I encourage you to take some time this week, maybe with your life group or your family or fellow members and recount all the ways, like David's doing here, recount all the ways that God has been faithful to deliver and prosper and provide to you. Practice thankfulness together and see how God stabilizes your heart. Rehearse all the blessings that he's provided to you in this life and is guaranteed in the next. Can you see how this exercise of grateful praise provides you an eagerness to trust him through the next challenge that is certainly going to come in this life? Get your eyes off of yourself and see your God. Recount his steadiness, his faithfulness, his dependability. And it will give you peace and strength. Has he ever once failed you? I'm not asking, has he provided everything you want? So often we're like children, where we think we know what we should have in the next moment, and we're just sometimes as silly. God is our sovereign king. He knows what we need, even the difficult things. David says through all the twists and turns in his life, God never let him down once. And he faced a lot of difficulty. 
Doesn't mean his life is easy. Obviously not. But he knew that God was working through each circumstance. And he kept running to him again and again. We come to the final verse and see where the song is ultimately pointing us. We read, great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Do you see in this the perspective of the past, the present, and the future from David's point of view? Remember, at the beginning of the story, we saw in 1 Samuel and heard it read again, a barren woman named Hannah who offers praise to God for providing her with a child. The last verse of her praise sounds a lot like this verse. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. That promise was partially fulfilled here in David. And David is saying, that's true. Look what God has done in my life. He was anointed to be the one who strengthened and defended God's people. But we know God's kingdom was going to expand beyond that relatively small region of Israel. It was going to go beyond David. He acknowledges that in verse 50. It would expand to all the nations. And it would go beyond David because David says he would show love to David's offspring forever. David's recalling here God's promises to him from 2 Samuel 7. And hear how that theme is picked up in the New Testament. Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, offers a similar song of praise. He begins his song. Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Peter picks this up in Acts 2 verse 30. He tells us that David was a prophet. He says, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. God through the resurrection then fulfilled that promise to David when he made Jesus both Lord and Christ. You know what this tells me? If that God is for me through Christ... Who can stand against us? What am I really fearing in this life? Do I have reasons to be afraid? So here's the point of these connections. Why can you trust your God to deliver you right now through the challenges and hardships of life? Because he's fulfilled every promise to David to your eternal benefit, to your benefit. Have you placed your confidence in him alone for eternal life? You've been invited to do that this morning already in the service. We're not asking if you know how to talk the Christian talk about God. It's easy in this culture to say nice things about Jesus. I'm not asking if you're a good moral person. Have you placed your confidence in God's provision of salvation alone. Has that changed your relationship with God to look something like this? Is it personal for you? Do you know this God? If you don't, today's the perfect time to begin a relationship with him. He's pursuing you. That's why you're hearing this message. We have a God who's dependable because he saves now, if you could sit down and have a cup of coffee with King David, 
This is how I would summarize what he's trying to say to us this morning. He's saying, cling to your God. Your greatest need is to know him personally, relationally, deeply. Get to know his ways. Meditate on his character. Explore the depths of his love for you and hold on to him. You're going to face hardship in a fallen world. You're going to suffer because others sin against you. And you're going to sin against others. The consequences of both are terrible and painful. And he still won't leave you. So you better know your God. Now you can try to find help for the hardships you face from the greatest human experts. Psychologists and authors, friends or family. You can look for wisdom from within your own mind, your own heart. But you will come up empty and afraid and insecure every time. Because no one can provide you what God can. My God, he's never failed me one time. No matter what I faced, unbeatable giants, inescapable threats, an irrational, wicked, and murderous father-in-law, threats from without, and threats from within. Nothing could separate me from the love of my God. You know this is true because he sent my greater son to deliver you from sin and death and hell. So you can only have the kind of security and peace through all the storms of life that you're going to face if you anchor your heart and soul and mind to him. He offers to be your rock, your stability. Security is found nowhere else but in him. So the choice is yours. But you have to choose to find refuge in him. Our text encourages us, it challenges us to praise our God for he faithfully delivers the one who's humble and dependent. We routinely rehearse these same truths when we sing together. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Do you sing those with personal passion? Acknowledging your God has been great to you. You know you've experienced his greatness. Is that truly your heart's condition? David's testimony concerning God's faithfulness to deliver him again and again is intended this morning to persuade you to make the same commitments in your life. When you do, you will sing this song of praise with David. It will become yours so that you might be able to praise him with the same gratitude and overflowing joy. And at the end of your life, you can say what David says here. The Lord is my rock. He's my fortress. He's my deliverer. He's my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing yourself to us even through this very normal man's experience. David is a human just like us. He was faulty. He was unfaithful at times. He failed. He sinned. And yet he testifies here with great passion and intensity 
that his God was always faithful to him. Lord, may we be more convinced of that this morning. And because we see that is true, may it change the way that we live today, this week, even the rest of our lives. God, you are worthy of all of our heart, of all of our mind, of all of our soul, of all of our strength. So help us to love you. Help us to worship you by serving you. It's our reasonable sacrifice. Give us grace to do what we cannot do ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.